Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three. One, two, three, Neds. That's where we've got to, the three Neds, starting with Edward I. And in my mind, at least, and it's perhaps because of the way the Neds are lumped together in the rhyme, that this feels like a new phase of the monarchy, a shift of focus away from France towards England. The three Neds feel to me like the first properly English kings since William the Conqueror. And it perhaps helps to keep this history clear if we break it down into sections. So we had our first phase, the Norman phase, from William I through William II, Henry I and Stephen, from father to son to brother to nephew. These are very much Norman invaders colonising England. Then we have this civil war between Stephen and Matilda, who was Henry I's daughter and designated heir. We've seen how she wasn't allowed to take the throne because she was a, a mere woman. But she ended up kind of ruling by proxy when her son, Henry II, was eventually crowned King of England. And he's very French, more French even than the Normans. He grew up at his father Geoffrey's court in Anjou as a Plantagenet. And so we have the start of the Plantagenet phase, the French part, from Henry II on through Richard and John and up to Henry III. These are kings who spent as much, if not more, time in France than in England. And now we come to what feels like a more English phase of the Plantagenet dynasty with the three Edwards. And it all starts with Henry III's obsession with Edward the Confessor and his interest in pre-Norman England in the Anglo-Saxons. 
Edward the Confessor being the last great Anglo-Saxon king. And Henry III names his son Edward after the Confessor, an Anglo-Saxon name, which is, which is actually pretty radical. And it goes beyond just the name. Edward seems less interested in France and more interested in what's going on in Britain. I mean, there's still this interminable, do we call it war or bickering between the English and the French. And the French king, who was either a Louis or a Philip, I can't remember, as Kath Hanley pointed out in an earlier episode, for about 200 years, the French kings were all called either Louis or Philip. So I don't expect you to keep up with them all. I certainly can't. So the French king, Louis or Philip, is forever trying to take back control from the various powerful fiefdoms, dukedoms, principalities, whatever you want to call them, such as Normandy, Anjou and Aquitaine, which have their own local rulers, but are still technically vassals of the French king. And these dukes are always forming alliances and trying to gain more power and claw back land from the French king. We've seen how during John and Henry's reigns, the English holdings in France shrunk to almost nothing. Even Normandy itself has been lost. Really, the only stronghold we have left there is Gascony down in the southwest. When Edward marries, he's given lots of titles and land by his father, including Duke of Aquitaine, Lord of Gascony and Lord of Ireland. And under the feudal system in France, he has to pay large sums of money to the French king every year and accept his authority over him which must have rankled. And when Louis, or probably Philip actually, made moves to take over Gascony, Edward was forced to defend his holdings in France. So he does have to try to keep hold of his French lands and perhaps enlarge them through fighting or making alliances. And this will be a constant distraction and drain on his funds, but he does seem to put most of his energies, for better or worse, into what's going on at home in Britain. So as I say, for me, this is a new phase for our monarchs, a desire to be seen as English. Edward I, he's, um, he's got quite a lot in common with Richard I. He, he is this sort of image of the great warrior king. He's about six foot two inches tall, um, he's nicknamed Edward Longshanks, uh, his long legs and his long arms, which gave him the sort of reach with his great two-handed broadsword so he could outreach his, his enemies in battle. He's also known, although this name was given to him much later on, as the Hammer of the Scots, even though ultimately he did a lot of hammering in Scotland, but he failed to drive the nail in fully, as we shall see. He was born in 1239. He died in 1307, aged 66. So he did pretty well on that front. He was yet another king to die of dysentery. So our column of English monarchs who've died from exploding stomachs, essentially, is, uh, is getting quite long. And I've gone on at length about dysentery, but essentially it's contracting stomach bacteria, viruses, whatever that... Uh, causes uh, terminal diarrhoea. 
And he ruled England from 1272 to 1307, which was 35 years, which is a pretty good span. He didn't come to the throne till he was in his 30s because his father, Henry III, as we've seen, had um, an unusually long reign and was the longest reigning monarch before George III, several hundred years later. So he was relatively mature when he came to the throne. When we see a lot of these kids, I mean, his father came to the throne at the age of nine, but a, a lot of them have been coming to the throne kind of in their late teens or early 20s. So he's already done quite a lot by the time he comes to the throne. Um, he's accepted readily by the, the English people because he embodies this tough, warlike, no-nonsense spirit which they admire. They may not have liked him very much, but he was admired and respected. Um, he apparently had a furious temper and was quite frightening. And at least two bishops are said to have dropped dead from fear in his presence as he launched one of his rants at them. He had a slightly drooping eyelid, which he seems to have inherited from his father. Henry III had the same thing. And he had a bit of a lisp as well, but it doesn't seem to have stopped him from being this feared, tough guy. A lot of people will be familiar with Edward from his portrayal by the great Patrick McGowan in Braveheart, um, Mel Gibson's preposterously inaccurate telling of the William Wallace story. And there are some fun scenes of of Edward displaying his temper and his kind of, well, he's portrayed as a psychopath, really, in that film, which, you know, may, may not have been that far from the truth. So, as I mentioned before, he was also Lord of Ireland from 1254, 20 years or so before he was ruler of England. I haven't talked very much about Ireland, but the Normans had invaded during Henry II's reign and were nominally ruling the country. We sometimes forget that the English presence in Ireland goes back a long way, nearly a thousand years. But Edward's life was kind of coloured by three great wars, three and a half wars that he was involved with. Um, in Wales, in Scotland, in the Holy Land, and constant war always, as we know, in France. Um, I'm calling the Holy Land the Holy Land rather than the Middle East. Um, I'm sure it has sort of colonialist connotations or whatever, and we're probably supposed to call it something else, but I'm going to call it that. In the spirit of it being holy to several different religions, um, to the Jews, because this is, of course, where the kingdom of Israel was, the original Jewish kingdom, um, to the Christians, because that's where Jesus's tomb was, theoretically, in Jerusalem, and obviously also to the Muslims who had taken over the whole area, particularly the, the Muslim Turks. Yes, yeah, so I'm sticking with Holy Land, but not trying to give the implication that it is a Christian Holy Land. But actually, there's another war that is involved. He puts it up to four and a half, five, five wars, whatever. He's, he's fighting a lot because uh, before he becomes King of England, uh, he's leading his father's troops in this Second Barons War that we looked at in the last episode. I'll briefly recap that. So we had this powerful, charismatic figure of Simon de Montfort, who was not happy with the way that Henry III was ruling. He had two main beefs. One, the king kept raising taxes to finance expensive and doomed military expeditions. And two, 
he gave lands and power to members of his wife's French family who had fled these disastrous wars in France that Henry had really badly mismanaged. And these incomers had been installed in dominant positions at court. To try to curb the king's excesses, de Montfort and his allies forced Henry to sign a kind of new Magna Carta known as the Provisions of Oxford. This updated the laws about what a king could and couldn't do. And it also updated the laws about what the barons and lords could and couldn't do because de Montfort was also trying to diminish the influence of these new French incomers. On the back of this, de Montfort also enlarged Parliament to include not just the lords and aristocrats, but also elected commoners. And this is seen as the birth of our parliamentary democracy, which will lead ultimately to our two houses of Parliament, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. But Henry and his French barons were not happy with this arrangement and they went to war with de Montfort and the rebel barons. Young Prince Edward was put at the head of Henry's army that went up against de Montfort at the Battle of Lewis and the royal forces lost. Edward and his father were both taken captive and de Montfort essentially took over the running of the country for a while. But it wasn't long before Edward escaped from captivity, which we'll look at in a minute, raised an army and defeated and killed de Montfort at the Battle of Evesham. Interestingly, Edward had originally been anti the provisions of Oxford because he was on the side of the nouveau French barons, but he was talked round and briefly rebelled against his father, Henry. It didn't last long and he went back over to Henry's side and never again went up against him. There was a period after the death of de Montfort when Henry feared that Edward might mount a coup against him and their relationship was pretty unsteady for a while. But once Edward convinced Henry that he was firmly on side, things went better between them. So as I say, Edward had been held prisoner by Simon de Montfort. And this was at Hereford Castle. And he managed to escape. And there's a great story about his escape, which is, I'm sure, completely apocryphal, as most of these sort of far-fetched uh, romantic stories from the time are. And it sort of has the feel of a, of a popular ballad or a sort of um, equivalent of a modern tabloid lies, I suppose you would call it. But the story goes that he's he's there at, in, in Hereford Castle and the owner of the castle takes delivery of these magnificent war horses and he knows how much Edward loves a war horse and he shows them off to him. Edward was in prison, but it wasn't like he was chained up in a dungeon. He would be more like a sort of under house arrest. Um, so he was treated fairly well. And he, he comes out to have a look at these horses and the guards say to him, you know, why don't you have a go on one? And he does. He, he takes his horse and he puts it through its paces, charging about on it, pulling up the reins to do kind of skid stops like a kid showing off on a motorbike. And he rides the horse into the ground. And then he looks at the second horse and says, oh, this one looks even better. And he does it all over again, riding it around until it's exhausted. And he works his way through the horses till he gets to the, the biggest and the toughest. And he says, oh, I've saved the best to last. And he jumps in the saddle and he rides off 
over the hill into the sunset and escapes because they can't follow him because all the other horses are literally knackered. Uh, so that's the story of Edward I. And, you know, as with many of these stories, you think, well, it's probably not true, but there's a sort of poetical truth to it. And I think it sort of tells us the sort of man that Edward was and certainly the sort of man that people perceived him as. So he escapes from Hereford Castle, rallies the troops around him, defeats de Montfort's army at the Battle of Evesham in 1265. Uh, and, and actually in this battle, Henry, his father is nearly killed. Henry, again, like Edward, was the sort of a guest prisoner of de Montfort. And it seems like Henry and a sort of captive English contingent were kind of at the back of the battle as spectators. And, but Edward had got the message to them that anybody loyal to him should wear his badge. And he chose for his badge the Cross of St. George that had been adopted by King Richard I as the sort of emblem of the English monarchy. And for some reason, Henry didn't wear his badge. Maybe he thought, I'm the king. Everybody knows who I am. I don't need to wear one of these bloody badges. Uh, and he was nearly killed until someone recognised him. He said, no, 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 wait a minute. No, you know, he's actually the king. Come to think of it, yeah. Don't, don't kill that one. Um, Henry manages to survive. Uh, de Montfort is slaughtered by this death squad, this hit squad that Edward put together. Twelve tough knights who track him down, kill him and cut him into small pieces. The war continues for another couple of years, but, but essentially the rebels know that uh, they're fighting a losing battle. And eventually Henry and Edward are victorious, at which point Edward decides to set off on a crusade. Um, this is something that everybody is kind of meant to do. And certainly if you're a king, if you can go off on a crusade and win military glory and Christian glory, then you will be a great king. We saw how Henry III raised money to go on a crusade and never actually went. Uh, and people were very suspicious of whether he ever intended to, that he just wanted the money. But Edward does set off. This is now the ninth crusade. So there's been a lot of attempts and, you know, they've all been fairly unsuccessful, inconclusive. Um, Jerusalem is still in the hands of the Muslim Turks. The stronghold for the Crusaders who have set up these sort of principalities out there, their stronghold is at Acre in, in Palestine, but it is um, under threat. So the crusade is going out there to relieve Acre and to fortify the Christian position. He sets off with the French under either Philip or Louis. <laughs> Unfortunately, the French, their fleet gets involved in bad weather and bad luck. And Edward arrives without the French and continues, manages to, to, to help a bit at Acre. It's not the most glorious campaign, but uh, he, he does prove himself as a good as a good military leader and campaigner. And uh, interestingly, he makes an alliance with the Mongols and tries to get them to help him by invading the, the Turkish-held lands from the north. They, they prove a useful distraction for a while, and that helps um, Edward in the south, but eventually they're unsuccessful and they go away again. But Edward, through his reign, continues sort of diplomatic dealings with the Mongols and is always uh, trying to think of ways that they might be able to help him and vice versa. Edward is out on the Crusades with his wife, Eleanor. This is Eleanor of Castile. Castile is in northern Spain, quite close to Gascony, which is the 
only English holdings we've got in southern France. And during Henry's reign, Henry III, Edward's father, he was very concerned that Castile might try and invade and take over Gascony. And so he decided to make an alliance with the Castilians. And he married his son Edward, who at the time was uh, 15, to a 13-year-old Eleanor of Castile, the daughter of the guy that rang the place, Alfonso. It does actually seem to have been, from the start, a successful alliance. The, the Castilian threat went away. And despite the fact that they married very young, um, it was a long and seemingly very happy marriage. Eleanor had at least 14 children with Edward. Sadly, not many of them lived beyond childhood, but he was devoted to her and like his uh, father Henry, who had been devoted to his wife, he was not known for having any mistresses and strings of illegitimate children, as, as many of his ancestors had. And yes, it does seem to have been a, a long and a happy marriage, and that he genuinely loved her. And they, they had many children, um, as I say, 14. And Edward was the 14th child. And it's amazing that he, you know, he survived when none of the others did. If the other if the other boys had survived, he wouldn't have been king by any means. He was I think he was like fifth in line to the throne technically. One of his older brothers was called Alfonso, and Alfonso was was born in 1273. And for the first ten years of his life, because his older brothers had died, he was heir to the throne. And, and so if he'd survived, England would have had a King Alfonso, which <laughs> you can't quite imagine it. But you, I suppose if we had had an Alfonso, it would have led to a, a lot of other people calling their kids Alfonso in honour of the king, and it would have been used again for other kings. And by now it would have just been accepted as, a, as another English name. Um, they're like, you know, Henry and William, which were French names, and Edward, an Anglo-Saxon name. But Alfonso, yeah, it, we would just accept it as uh, how are you i remember king alfonso uh, but he died unfortunately when he was 10 and it was alfonso's brother edward that eventually took the throne as edward ii but back to his father edward i he was devoted to his wife she went with him on this uh, on the ninth crusade and she was with him when he survived an assassination attempt by one of the Syrian order of assassins. And we looked at these assassins um, in an early episode and how, um, what a big part they played in these, these wars and the crusades out in the Holy Lands, where both sides were hiring assassins to, to kind of bump off the people who stood in their way. Edward survived the attempt, killed the assassin, but they're pretty sure that the blade the assassin had was poisoned because Edward was quite ill for a long while afterwards. There's an apocryphal story that his wife sucked out the poison and saved his life. And again, there's, there's no actual proof of it, but it has a poetic truth in terms of how devoted they were to each other. Uh, he's out there for a couple of years on this crusade, sort of leaves it in a slightly better position than when he arrived, but he didn't exactly cover himself with glory. And on the way back, he finds out that his father, Henry, has died of a stroke. But Edward doesn't rush back. It takes him two years to get back to England and be crowned. I mean, he's officially 
king. You can be declared king without being crowned, as we've seen recently with King Charles, who became king as soon as Elizabeth II died. But his coronation doesn't happen until May of uh, 2023, uh, when it all becomes absolutely official. But you don't need to be crowned to be the king or queen. On the way back to England, he stops off in Savoy in eastern France and Gascony in southwest France to visit his wife's family and try to shore up his power base in the region. And he eventually gets home in 1274. He's accepted, as I say, his, his coronation is popular with the people. They accept him and there's a feeling that now at last we might have some stability. We've got a, we've got a strong king. The baron's revolt has been put down. And indeed, Edward does apply himself to properly trying to be a stable ruler of a stable country. He agrees to these various charters. He signs some new ones, really properly pinning down um, this relationship between the king and parliament and the people and church. And so we have now a, an established parliament that meets three times a year. It has representatives of as I said before, for the common people and of the barons. He uh, renovates the coinage, which has all gone a bit awry. He creates new coins. He tries to stabilise the treasury. So, you know, he, he is seen as being, on that front, a pretty good and useful king, particularly after all of the uh, unrest that we've had with Henry and then before him with John. But there are always problems. The first problems start in Wales. Ever since William the Conqueror's time, the English kings have been making excursions into Wales to subdue the locals and take over parts of it. Up till now, this has been mostly in the south, along the strip where the M4 goes through Wales today. And the Welsh have been periodically rising up and trying to kick the English out. There's an uprising in 1276 that Edward puts down, but then there's a much more serious one in 1282, led by various Welsh leaders, including the overall ruler of the Welsh, the Prince of Wales, as he's known by the English. So these, uh, these leaders in Welsh, it's spelt T-Y-W-Y-S-O-G, uh, in the single, and then I think the plural, there's an I-O-N on the end. My Welsh pronunciation is not good, so apologies if I get it wrong, but I think the word for these leaders was Tawusog in the single and Tawusogion in the plural, which in the sort of official documents of the time was translated into Latin as principes, which becomes anglicised as prince. So these are known as the Princes of Wales, and the overall ruler is the Prince of Wales, which is the Tawusog Cymru. Yeah, so I hope I got that somewhere close to correct. And there are many, many of these Welsh leaders, Welsh heroes. And again, apologies to any Welsh listeners, I'm not going to get heavily into the, the history of Wales and see it from the Welsh side. I, I can't cover absolutely everything. There are some great stories and some great characters, as I say, some great heroic leaders. Edward puts down a minor uprising in 1276, as I say, but then in 1282, there's a much bigger threat and Edward goes in with a big army. And this time it's not with the idea of putting down a rebellion. It is with the idea of ultimate conquest. So to the Welsh, this is fighting for independence. 
And finally, Edward is declaring, okay, you are going to be under my rule. And he takes his army in and comprehensively defeats the Welsh in a series of campaigns. And particularly up into the northern parts of Wales, pushes where they've not been before. And he builds this kind of ring of these immense fortified castles, which to us today are these very beautiful. They're some of the, the biggest and most beautiful castles in the world. Castles like Beaumaris, Carnarvon and Harlech. Uh, but this was a concrete boot coming down on Wales. These are symbols of, of oppression. But sadly for the Welsh, th this was the end of their attempt at independence. And Edward was now firmly in charge of Wales and started the tradition that the firstborn son of the English king be named Prince of Wales. They haven't all been called that ever since some history books said. And ever since that day, all of these firstborn sons have been the Prince of Wales. They haven't. It's slightly one of those um, traditions that's been retrospectively written into history. And we'll look at that a little bit more when we come to deal with Edward II in the next episode, as he was the first Prince of Wales. And there's there some interesting stories around that. So Edward has managed to subdue the Welsh. The other thing he does, as well as building these castles, is he builds new towns in Wales, places like, well, Aberystwyth is probably the best known. And he fills them with English people, with English colonists. It's very much what the Russians did in the Ukraine, going back to Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, where they recolonized the Ukraine and built these towns and put Russian people there. And, and again, which Putin has done in eastern Ukraine and in, and in Crimea, so that the, the people in these towns are saying, well, I'm sorry, but I'm Russian, I'm not Ukrainian. And so this is the sort of thing that's always been done through history. And, and we English did it in Wales. I mean, what's interesting now is, you know, we're now 800 years later. And despite the fact that technically the English have sort of ruled Wales, they have become part of Great Britain, of the United Kingdom, it is still a completely and, and fiercely independence, probably not the right word, but, you know, it has its own identity and definitely thinks of itself as a country separate to England and always will be and, and probably will will become more Welsh and more independent as history goes on rather than the other way round. It, it never got subsumed to become just another bit of England and exactly the same with Scotland and of course with Ireland. We won't talk about Northern Ireland for now. Um, and after subduing the Welsh, Scotland does become Edward's next target. He's, he's thinking, okay, look, I can properly take over the whole lot. Because what it means, if you're fully ruling these places, is you take all the money, all this tribute that is paid to you in, and taxation or whatever. And these parliaments that are being held three times a year, they're almost entirely about taxation, about who's going to take money from whom and how much. There is other stuff about the justice system and Edward did build on what had been agreed with the signing of the Magna Carta and the provisions of Oxford in terms of creating a, a fair and just system for the ordinary people of England, not just for the, um, the highborn. So there's two reasons to want to subdue these, these neighbouring countries. One is money and, and the other is this idea that to be a proper king and to get the people on your side, you have to be fighting someone. You have to be smashing somebody's head open with a big sword. And so if you haven't got a war on, uh, it sometimes benefits you to start one. 
and choose somebody whose head you're going to go and smash in. So in 1286, Alexander III, King of Scotland, dies. Up to this point, um, relations between Scotland and England have been reasonably stable. Uh, Alexander has accepted, even though Edward is not his king, that he, that he is a sort of vassal and Scotland has been paying a certain amount to the English to keep them out, out of the way. But Alexander dies, at which point there are 14 people who have a claim to the throne. And so things are thrown up in the air. They have various councils and meetings, and Edward supports a guy called John Balliol and is eventually made King of Scotland, at which point Edward treats him as a complete subordinate, as a total vassal, and keeps telling him what to do, and even uh, keeps dragging him down to London and stand charges that various people have accused him of misdemeanours. Balliol hates this. Uh, the Scottish people hate being trampled over this way. At the same time, there is problems in France as the French king has confiscated the Duchy of Gascony, which is Edward's only surviving foothold in France. So Edward goes to France to try and resolve this dispute, raising heavy taxation in England and in Scotland. The Scottish, seeing that Edward is distracted, rise against him. And so Edward is kind of fighting wars on two fronts here. Neither of them go that well. The other thing that happens in 1290 is his beloved wife, Eleanor of Castile, dies whilst in uh, Lincoln. And so he returns for this and he's absolutely devastated. He sort of worshipped his wife. And her funeral cortege travels from Lincoln down to London. And afterwards, everywhere that the funeral stops for the night, Edward commissions this big cross to be built, this elaborate stone carving with statues of Eleanor, different aspects of her life on the different statues, uh, rising up to a small cross at the top. Um, it was based on a, a, a French design that the French kings used, and it became quite influential. Lots of other crosses have been based on it and, and monuments. Um, the Albert Memorial, for instance, in Hyde Park is based on this design. It's on a much larger scale. There are, I think, three of these crosses surviving, or at least parts of them. And as he approached London, the funeral stopped in Waltham where Waltham Abbey is, and that name, and the name of Waltham was named to Waltham Cross. And then when it got to London, it stayed in the area known as uh, Charing, and a cross was erected there, and that area became known as Charing Cross. And there is a replica of the Charing Cross outside the station today. Most people sort of walk past and hardly notice it's there, but if you want to see an example of what these crosses looked like, it is still, it is, it's still quite a, an attractive monument outside Charing Cross. So, you know, that shows the softer side of Edward. These crosses weren't cheap. What's really interesting is, you know, they've got all the records of who was commissioned to build them, who was the stonemasons were, who was the, the artist who designed the statues and carved the statues and how much they cost. We're really starting to see so much existing historical evidence for these times in history, which makes my job really difficult because there's so much more information to try and get across. And I've got to try and kind of hack a path through there. 
But uh, yeah, so so that shows, I think, Edward's gentler, more romantic side. But unfortunately, 1290 is the year in which he does something which has been a permanent stain on his reputation. We've looked in the previous episodes about the way the Jews were, were treated in England, that they were the property of the king, and he would simultaneously protect them and squeeze as much money out of them as he could, which is why he was protecting them, because they were a good cash cow for the monarch. But they had been so squeezed that there wasn't a lot more juice to get out of them. And the barons were always complaining about their debts. They didn't want to pay their debts to the Jews. And Edward, in order to raise money for his simultaneous campaigns in Scotland and France and to keep his barons happy and on side, expelled the Jews from England. He kicked them all out. If a Jew agreed to convert to Christianity, they could stay. Um, some did, and obviously not all of them genuinely gave up their Jewish faith. But most of the Jews were expelled from England. Many were killed. Their property was confiscated. Their monies were taken. Edward made a big income from it. I mean, it's a very, very short-sighted thing to do. Because actually, if he'd protected the Jews and um, helped them, they were very valuable for the economy, for society, and it was a very good income for Edward, you know. I mean, it's a similar sort of short-term cash crop to, to what Margaret Thatcher did, where she sold off all the publicly owned housing stock and, you know, things like BT and, and all these big companies. Um, swells the coffers, but then 10 years down the line, you've got absolutely nothing. So the Jews very poorly treated. They're expelled from England, and they don't officially return for another... It's about 400 years, the 1650s. It's not until the 1650s when they're allowed back. And I've been trying to find out because one of the reasons that the, you know, the Jews were useful to the English economy was that because one of the few things they were allowed to do was to lend money with interest. And money lending is a hugely important thing to keep your economy going. And Edward uh, started dealing with these Italian banks. This is the time of the sort of establishment of the the Lombard banking system and the, the Frescobaldi's. Lombard Street is still an important part of the city of London, the sort of heart of the banking district. And so he used these Italian um, bankers. What I'm not entirely sure about is how the Italian bankers were allowed to operate because technically usury was still a sin. Usury being the practice of lending money with interest, which is which is really the only way of safeguarding a loan and making sure that if a borrower defaults, the person lending the money is not entirely out of pocket. I think possibly how it worked with the Italians was that the person borrowing the money would put up as collateral property, belongings, land, etc. So on many levels, Edward was a great king. He did a lot to restore order and stability and to establish a, a working parliament. But he did some pretty awful things along the way. In 1296, the Scots fully rebel against the, the English. Edward takes an army up, defeats them. He steals their stone of destiny, this sacred stone, their symbol of the Scottish monarchy. This is the Stone of Schoon, and it's still controversial because we not long ago gave the stone back to the Scots 
It's currently kept in the Scottish Parliament, but it's been an integral part of the English coronation ceremony since Edward's time. When Edward took it, he built it into his throne in Westminster Abbey, and our monarchs basically sit on it to be crowned. So in the lead up to King Charles III's coronation in 2023, everyone was asking, is the Stone of Schoon going to be involved? And it was. It was brought back down to England for the ceremony, which annoyed a lot of the Scotch. And I've deliberately said Scotch there in order to annoy them even more. But there you go. That has been a big bone of contention. Uh, so at this point, Edward deposes John Balliol, who he helped make king, locks him up at the Tower of London and declares himself ruler of Scotland. There are bloody battles at Berwick-upon-Tweed and Dunbar. And, and for a little while, Edward is successful. And this is perhaps how he earns himself the epithet Hammer of the Scots. But it doesn't last, particularly as Edward treats the Scots very, very harshly, brings in many punitive measures that don't go down well, and, and really tries to impose English rule and English law on Scotland. And, and there's a growing resistance movement. Two figures, there's uh, a guy called Andrew de Moray in the north, and William Wallace in the South. William Wallace, who you might know as Mel Gibson in Braveheart. In Braveheart, Mel Gibson sort of portrays him as this sort of kilt-wearing, semi-nude, woad-covered man of the woods who's living uh, with his family as if it's sort of sometime in the Stone Age. But, you know, tartan kilts and things hadn't been invented at that, at that point. They came much later. He was actually a Scottish nobleman. And, you know, this dispute had been long running in Scotland, you know, going back long before the, even the death of Alexander III. So Mel Gibson's depiction of that is, is not accurate. But again, is, is he telling a poetic truth about um, freedom and people rising up against their oppressors? I mean, it's a thinly veiled sort of anti-colonialist you know it might as well be the american war of independence or the australian war of independence which never actually happened and maybe mel gibson wished it had and this is his way of of staging it in scotland uh, as a cross between sort of um, mad max and robin hood but he is um, initially successful against the british and he defeats an English army at the Battle of Stirling Bridge in 1297. He lets half the English army come across this narrow stone bridge and then attacks them before the rest of the army can come over. And it's a fairly uh, decisive defeat. The, the battle in Braveheart is very exciting. It's very well done. Mel Gibson staged those battles incredibly well. But in the film, they don't call it the Battle of Stirling Bridge. They call it the Battle of Stirling uh, because if you see the film, there is no bridge. He took that part out. Uh, I don't know, maybe you couldn't find a, a bridge that was right or maybe it just felt a bit more heroic to take on the whole army and defeat them without his uh, clever tactic of bottling them up, kettling them on the bridge. But Wallace's triumph is not that long lived. Edward defeats him at the Battle of Falkirk and Wallace goes on the run, at which point the Scots take up this sort of tactic of guerrilla warfare, of not openly engaging the English in combat, but they attack the castles, they attack troops when they're on the move, 
And this goes on, you know, William Wallace is at the heart of this. Until 1305, when Wallace is betrayed by a fellow Scot and sold to the English, he's taken to London where he is uh, hung, drawn and quartered. So he's hung until he's nearly dead. Then they pull his guts out while he's still alive, draw his guts out, and then finally they chop him into pieces and stick bits of him up on different poles. So that's the, the sad end of William Wallace. There's a very fanciful thing in the film where he's had an affair with, with Edward's second wife and becomes the secret father of the English monarchy. Um, this is total bollocks. I think at the time of his death, Edward's second wife was uh, about six years old. But anyway, that's the poetic truth that Mel Gibson serves up to us. And it is Robert the Bruce who's not very well portrayed and treated in the film. But it is Robert the Bruce who becomes uh, the King of Scotland in 1306. Uh, he kills his rival, declares himself king, and, and Edward pulls together another army to march up and try and put this down. But as we, as we see time and time again in history, the more that Edward tries to put pressure on the, the Scots, to batter them down, to, to punish them, to execute people who stand against him, the stronger the Scots' defiance gets and the stronger their will for independence. And the time of his death, Edward is leading an army up to Scotland in 1307, but he, he's quite elderly by this point and he catches a stomach bug and starts to die from dysentery. And on his deathbed, he appoints his son, Edward II, as his successor. There are various fanciful stories around his death that, uh, that he orders his bones to be carried at the head of the army so he can still lead his army into Scotland and things like that, which are all no doubt entirely made up. But that is the, the sort of uh, damp squib of an ending of Edward. He doesn't have his final glorious battle in Scotland and he leaves the throne to his son, Edward II, and it's interesting, we sort of flip-flop through this period, from Henry to Edward I to Edward II to Edward III to Richard II, with a sort of a crap king and a tough king. So Henry's pretty useless, Edward I is tough, Edward II, things don't go well there. Edward III restores order and power again, then his grandson, Richard II, has a very similar fate to, to Edward II. So next episode, we'll see what happens with Edward II, who inherits from his father initially, well, a campaign in Scotland. He's now got to lead this army up into Scotland, which doesn't go well, as we will see in the next episode. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm very happy to say that my guest historian today is Mark Morris. It's the return of Mark Morris, who you may remember if you've been listening diligently joined us for our second episode on the Anglo-Saxons. It's very nice to be back. I thought for a minute, when you said that the return of Mark Morris is perilously close to, of course, the return of Mark Morrison, the the, the, the rapper, so um, and the return of the Mac. Well, so you're becoming a bigger name than him. Apparently so. Yeah. <laughs> Though his, his, his book on the Hundred Years' War is going to end, change all that. You know? <laughs> but the reason I've got you back, Mark, is obviously because you have written some time ago now, a book mm. on Edward I. Did, do you remember any of the research you did? Yeah, quite a lot of it. I mean, it was it was my first big book. It was Edward I. And there were other kings who were suggested to me by my agent and my publishers who were more famous. Um, you know, and, and I think Edward I, the problem with him is he's, he's really, really important. There's arguably no more important medieval king of England than Edward I, more, more consequential. But he's not as famous as, say, his grandfather, King John, or his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, you know, William the Conqueror. They're names to conjure with, whereas Edward I, he doesn't um, he doesn't have a Shakespeare play written about him apart from anything else. So even more obscure late medieval kings or less consequential ones. Yeah, which, I, you know, I think is fascinating. You know, you're saying that people don't remember him, and obviously in some places they do, and they don't remember him fondly even after all this time. Yeah, I mean, it was striking. My book came out, uh, my book on him came out in 2008, which was just after his the 700th anniversary of his death. He died in 1307. Mm. And at the time, you know, the obituarists were, even if they didn't like him, I mean, they, obviously the, the people writing at Westminster at the time praised him to the skies, but people writing in Ireland and people writing it's an, on the other side of the cultural fence who'd experienced like, the, the destruction of his wars, Nevertheless, said you know this. He was a a great king. He was a you know um, a, 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 a Rex Magnus, you know, which is mm. half half of my title, of course. And that was kind of entirely absent on the seven hundredth anniversary of his death. You'd think with um a, you know a centenary year, he might get a, a postage stamp or something, but nothing. <laughs> not even Westminster Abbey wanted to not where he's buried. Uh, not even they wanted to acknowledge in any way the 700th anniversary of his passing. So he's still kind of seen as being problematic. Well, well, he did all the things that we're not supposed to do these days. He acted in a very imperious and warlike manner. He he crushed the Welsh, he hammered the Scots, he was Lord of Ireland, he went on a crusade and he expelled the Jews from England. I mean, that upsets just about every sensibility going and all those things are now considered terrible, but in Edward's day were considered great. Yes, well, I think the thing is he was he was considered both great and terrible at the time. I mean, now terrible, ter obviously, just for the um, we don't mean terrible in the modern sense, but more in the inspiring terror sense. Is that that exactly. is that a quote from the from the time? Yeah, well, it's 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 a, a few. It's, a, it's a, a quote I made up based on <laughs> those words were used by his Westminster obituarist when he died in right. 1307. Thank God, his Westminster obituarist wrote a very very long sort of ten or twelve page obituary, in which he called him um, a, a, a Rex Magnus, a great king. But mm. also pages later, he said to his enemies, to the sons yes. of pride, he said he was indeed a Rex Terribilis, which, as you say, 
terrible as they're being used in the biblical sense of a great and terrible wilderness or or the Tolkien-esque sense, you know, I, I would have a power too great and terrible were I to take the ring, Frodo. Not in the sense of, you know, this carpet's terrible, you know, yeah. a terrible meal last night. <laughs> what a terrible it's, ring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's only made me half invisible. Of all the wildernesses <laughs> I've seen, this is the most terrible. No, it's, it's in a sense, it's terrifying. And that, what's interesting about that is that, but as you say, nowadays, we would reckon most of his acts, or many of his acts, his acts of aggression, to be terrible, um, uh, and that would be a negative judgment. But to contemporary Englishmen, contemporary English people, being terrible wasn't a, wasn't something that counteracted his greatness. On the contrary, it was an integral part of what made him great. Mm. In other words, in order to protect his English subjects... These English subjects felt that he had to, you know, go after his enemies with fire and sword in order to defend them. So, you know, that in that sense, ter- you know, great and terrible was a kind of part of the same package. Yeah, I mean, this is this can, has come up time and time again in this series. Is 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 looking back at these uh, rulers through modern eyes um, is very different to how they were seen at the time and for hundreds of years after. I mean, I was at school in the sixties in quite a sort of traditional old fashioned prep school. And we were still taught about the great Edward the first, the hammer of the Scots. Oh, really? Um, so I, I was probably the sort of <laughs> the tail end of, of, of that kind of historical education where yeah. he, he was this key figure in, in history. Yeah, and he was. I mean, as an as a king of England. I mean, he England at the time he took the reins of power. He was um, became king in twelve seventy two. England had suffered civil war and division for you know the last twenty years, and um, was sort of you know not quite on its knees, but it was. It, there was a lot of work of reform to do in terms of um, uh, you know getting the English polity back on its feet after the troubles of Henry the Third's reign, mm. and um, Edward solves all that very quickly. Um, and for the first twenty years of his reign, he's he's um, he's a you know very sort of a consensus builder, and he's sort of having biannual parliaments, and he's still reckoned, although he tests the patience of his English subjects with the constant financial demands for for wars at the end of his reign, he's still reckoned to be a great king, and that that judgment on him rolls on right down to the twentieth century. So you look at medieval chroniclers, later medieval chroniclers, they call him Edward the Conqueror, Edward the Great, Edward the Bold, all names that have fallen out of favour now. Yeah. But but even until um a good, best example I can think of is if you're in central London, you go out the north exit of Hoban tube station, you look mm. up at the building opposite, there was two statues put up in 1901. And you probably can tell why in 1901, because 1901, we had the first King Edward in 350 years, Edward right. VII. So he sat on the right-hand side looking kind of dumpy and sort of, you know, late middle-aged. <laughs> and on the other side is the person, the of all the other Edwards they could have chosen, the Edward they hold up as an exemplar to this new King Edward, and it's Edward I, looking impossibly noble, like kind of Aragorn, you know, at mm. the end of Lord of the Rings, you know, sort of, you know, um, handsome and with a sword on his lap, symbolising justice. So even as late as 1901, the start of the 20th century, Edward is being held up as a paragon of, of perfect kingship. And it's only really in the 20th century that historians start to say, well, from a Welsh point of view, not so good. From a Scottish point of view, not very good. From a Jewish point of view, really, really problematic, you know, and, yeah. and sort of start, you know, knocking great chunks out of his his reputation. As a historian, you don't have to come down on either side, but... Um... 
in modern terminology, having spent time writing about him, did you come down on the great or the terrible side? <laughs> well, as I say, I didn't see a distinction. I mean, this is one of the things whenever yeah. I'm speaking about this, I, I say that from from our modern point of view, he has all these terrible flaws, um, uh, which at the time were not seen as flaws at all. They were seen as being, you know, I mean, let's just take this, go with the example of of, um, uh, of his um, expulsion of the Jews, which happens in yes. 19, uh, sorry, in, in 1290. Um you know this that level of anti-semitism you know we would regard with horror i mean i think that's one of the shifts of the 20th century is at the start of the 20th century you could kind of sweep that under the carpet there's mm. no way you could do that after 1939 to 45 yeah so you know he's seen through a new lens in the post-war period um so um but that for his for contemporaries the fact that he persecuted um non-believers unbelievers as as they would have seen them that was something to be celebrated at what he got um uh, in, in in return for the expulsion in 1290 was the biggest tax grant ever granted to any medieval english monarch of the entire middle ages it's this huge six-figure sum in tax from a grateful nation what edward the first was was an entirely normal and hugely anti-semitic englishman who happened to be king, you know, happened to be hugely powerful, supported and cheered by a, a hugely anti-Semitic nation. You know, mm. England is probably the most anti, one of the most anti-Semitic corners of Europe at the time. So, um, I say I don't with with any of these characters. You know, it, it's um, I'm, I'm not sort of sort of saying, oh, on the one hand, oh, there's all this good stuff he did, and on the other hand, there's all this bad stuff. It's trying to see him. Was he typical? Was he exceptional? And and see him as a lens through which to see understand what's going on in 13th and early 14th century Britain. Mm. And is it fair to say that the, the, the English monarchs had resisted attacks on the Jews, had protected the Jews in the country because they were a very useful source of income? Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and what changed in Edward's time? Was it the pressure on him got too much? Did he just want to go for a a huge sudden windfall and not worry about the long-term consequences. I mean, what, what what changed? There's clearly a, t a tipping point um, either in or just before Edward's own reign. Um, so you're right. The, the As far as we can tell, there were no Jewish communities in pre-conquest England. There is no written evidence to suggest mm. or, or any evidence, archaeological or written, as far as I'm aware. And um, earliest evidence we have, William Malmesbury writing in the 1120s, says that the first Jewish community in London was brought over by William the Conqueror, um, you know, some point during his reign. And from that point on, you get Jewish communities um, established in English towns in their principal um, uh, way of making a living is money lending, which is a, a practice yeah. forbidden um, to Christians. So the, and, and the crown has they are basically the crown. Ha uh, considers the Jews to be basically like sort of serfs in a way. They have this kind of weird kind of codependent relationship with the crown in that the king can more or less tax them or tallage them like serfs whenever he, whenever the mood takes him. So if he never needs cash, he can say, I want £10,000. You guys are incredibly rich. I want £10,000. He can mulk to them on demand. And at the same time, for that reason, because they are his moneylenders, the, the king protects them. So you often find Jewish communities are are in not only in towns, but very close to the royal castle. So if, you know, there is any sort of anti-Semitic um, violence, they can be protected by the sheriff. 
what happens to skip to the actual answer to your question is what happens in the course of the 13th century is the Jewish community, which was pretty rich at the start of the 13th century, it even recovered from the depredations carried out against it by King John. The Jewish community is taxed and taxed and taxed by Edward's father, Henry III, to a point where it never really recovers. And by the start of Edward's reign, therefore, um, in terms of numbers, I don't think the numbers of Jews are particularly reduced. I could be wrong about that. It's a long time since I wrote the book. But in terms of their their, their wealth, there's not much more wealth to be had. Hmm. And so Edward sort of, yeah, there is a tipping point where he realises that, I mean, he's he's taxing the Jews along, but the, 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 the revenues from that street are very, very small. It's maybe a couple right. of thousand pounds. And so, yes, what he does in 1290, he does the same as his cousin, um, Charles of Anjou, and he goes for a windfall tax and says to the Burgesses in Parliament, the Knights and the Burgesses, who are sort of, you know, um, very keen to sort of, you know, um, uh, expel Jewish communities. He says, basically, you know, I'll give you what you want. And in return for that, you know, you must compensate me for the financial loss. And they give him, as I say, a six figure sum mm. in, in revenue at a time when his his ordinary revenue is a five figure sum. His ordinary revenue is about 27 grand a year. So he gets something like four or five times his annual regular income for that one political act. So, you know, um, yes, you know, the short answer to your question is yes, it's it's for him, it's a tipping point, And for him, it's this kind of um, this one off windfall tax. I, in my introduction to, to Edward and the three Edwards, because obviously this is based on the Willy Willy Harry Stee rhyme. And, and, and certainly in my head, when I get to one, two, three Neds, it feels like a a, a real shift in in English history. And it feels to me that this is the first time that these English kings are really thinking of themselves as English kings and, and this idea of being an English nation and we're not so tied to being Normans or French, particularly as, as for the first time, they're given an English name. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's been growing, obviously, throughout the... 12th and 13th centuries. I mean, if you even if you go back to um, William the Conqueror's youngest son, Henry I, um, he was um, married to uh, a Scottish princess who had English mm. ancestry. He was, um, uh, you know, mocked at his court because he was seen to be such an Anglophile king by his Norman barons. Um, and but is that not just another political marriage in the same way that the English kings are constantly marrying French aristocrats? I think these kings thought of themselves as, and indeed their aristocracies, their baronages, thought of themselves as kind of having sort of, you know, different nationalities or dual nationalities from quite an early date. So the idea that they were going around sort of saying, we Normans, blah, 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 for hundreds of years after the conquest and, and not being able to understand what the English people were saying, I think is for the birds. Right. Because there's loads of evidence of bilingualism by the, say, 100 years after the conquest. And people always say, oh, did you know the first king to speak English was, you know, um, Henry the Fourth or something? It's like, no, that was when English became the official language of court. English kings, I mean, the first person for whom we have evidence that they were speaking English, first king, after the conquest, is Edward I on mm. crusade. But I, I, I find it very hard to believe that intelligent, learned, literate kings like, say, Henry II, a hundred years after the conquest, weren't able to speak English and weren't able to say what their courtiers were saying about them. And because we know that, um, I mean, there's a, there's a there's another example from Henry II's reign of his, um, his, 
he's a treasurer of the Exchequer looking around, Ralph Fitznigel looking around saying, if you look around court today, you can't tell who's Norman and who's English anymore. It's all the same. You know, they've all sort of intermarried and intermixed. So all of which is that they don't necessarily think of themselves as fully fledged Englishmen, but they have this sense of I live in a country called England. I might speak French, but that's not necessarily doesn't mean I can't think of myself as English. And but English national, uh, the sort of sense of English national consciousness that's growing in certainly in the 13th century. Um, it's, of course, encouraged by, as you say, Henry III, with his good Norman name, choosing to revive an Anglo-Saxon name, not just for Edward, but for Edward's younger brother, Edmund. So he's calling his sons after English saints. And one of the, just last point, one of the big things that feeds into that sense of separateness is, of course, in 1204, Henry's father, Edward's grandfather, bad King John, loses Normandy and to, to the King of France and loses Anjou. So from that point, whereas earlier kings like Richard the Lionheart, Henry II, etc., had spent two thirds or more of their time on the continent outside of England, from 1204 onwards, England, the, the king is normally in residence in England and it's a rarity for him to be abroad. Um, he, if he goes, on, he goes to France, he's either going on a diplomatic visit or he's going on campaign. Um, it's only really Gascony that they have. So the kings are resident in England. They have English names. They're speaking English. And to all intents and purposes from, you know, certainly from Edward I reign on, people thought of him as, you know, an, an English king. And he is attacking the Welsh, attacking the Scottish mm. and attacking the French as an Englishman. Well, to be fair, in terms of the French, it's the French who attack him. Yes. Well. Um, so he's, uh, you know, you can, with all these things, I mean, it sounds like me lodging a case for the defence of Edward I. You can make a case, you know, you can see Edward's point of view in terms of, you know, the the, the wars he waged. I mean, the, the, the relationship between the Welsh and the, the English hadn't been good since, you know, the conquest or even mm -hmm. going back to, like, you know, the 5th century. Um, there's always a sort of a, a case to be made. With Scotland, it's much more um, uh, controversial um, and, and, and also more tragic because with Scotland... Just as the English and the Welsh, uh, English and the um, French have been getting on like a house on fire for all of Edward's lifetime, so too had the English and the Scots. I mean, Edward's sister was married to a king of Scots. Edward's aunt was married to a king of Scots. Countless English aristocrats, like the Earls of Norfolk, the Earls of Pembroke, Earls of Gloucester, they were married to Scottish prince, uh, Scottish you know aristocratic ladies. Um, Scottish, um, well, English. Uh, monastic houses have been founding daughter houses in Scotland. English merchants have been going across the border to set up shop in Scottish boroughs. Uh, you know, there was a, there was Scotland, to put it very bluntly and crudely, Scotland had been rapidly uh, anglicising in the course of the 13th century and or approximating England in its sort of, you know, manners and behaviour. And that meant they were on a convergence course and they were getting on really, really well. Um, and what Edward did was... The first part the, the the plan was uh, to give you a little bit more uh, context for people who don't know the story, and I'm just struggling to remember it. Um, what happens in the 1280s is the, the 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 Royal House of Scotland, with whom Edward the Royal House of England was intermarried and had been getting on very well for a long, long time, um, they suddenly run out of sons. That the, uh, all of the uh, the Alexander the Third, both his sons die before him. And in an effort to correct that, he marries a young um, um, French princess um, and then dies sort of, you know, riding through the night to sort of um, to, to go and meet her in 1286. Um, and it means that the 
the the sort of dynastic security of that uh, Scottish royal house rests on his granddaughter, who was um, the maid of Norway. She was, um, you know, daughter of a daughter who married a, a king of Norway. And the plan had been in both among the, the Scottish political community and Edward I on his part was that they were going to marry Edward's only son. Edward only has um, one surviving son by this point the future Edward II, he was going to marry this Scottish princess, the heir to the crown of Scotland. And had that happened, Charlie, you would have had a union of the crowns there and then in 1290. And mm. it would have been far better than the one we eventually got in 1603, because the English <laughs> and the Scots wouldn't have spent the intervening three centuries knocking seven bells out of each other. They were already on a cultural and political convergence course. But when she dies, this is the tragic part, the maid of Norway dies en route to Scotland. And Edward is, you know, so far advanced down that path, he thinks, well, I should be I should be sort of overlord of Scotland anyway. And what he does is he manipulates and machinates against the Scots for the next several years until in 1295 they they rebel, you know, as far as they can see, you know, reject his overlordship and go to war against him. And so it's, it's I think you can see in that sense, Edward felt that Scotland, he could just treat like Wales. He could say, well, I'm, you know, I'm overlord of Britain. That's a given. Everyone knows that back to King Arthur, you know, that the kings of England are the, are the dominant political player on, in, this, in this island. The Scots reject that. And it's, I think that's, that's the sort of terrible tragedy of Edward's reign is that he, 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 he sort of browbeat the Scots and, mm. and, and, you know, treated them as, as if it was his God-given right to rule Scotland. And it could have been, it was, and it could have been very different. Those of our age mm -hmm. <laughs> um, who, who do know Braveheart, the, the, the image presented of, of the Scots in that and the Scots aristocracy is, like everything else in the film, very shaky. And this idea that the Scottish are all these kind of wild men in kilts covered in paint. And uh, as, as far as I can see, the sort of Scottish, the royalty and the aristocracy seem very similar to the to the English. Yeah, well, as I said, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, slightly, it's, I'm not trying to be provocative, but the, the Scots since the early 12th century have been approximating the behaviour, the manners, the, the morals of their English neighbours. Or if you like, if that sounds too controversial, the, the sort of, the, the way the aristocracies have been behaving in Western Europe. Yes. Um, and not... You know, that means abandoning the customs and practices and usages of their um, Celtic ancestors. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, they're, they're, they're building castles in a European fashion. They're speaking French at court. They are, as I say, getting on very well with their English neighbours. One of the I mean, one of the one of the very good um, um, benchmarks of, of how enthusiastic or enthusiastically the, the Scots were buying into this is the principles involved in the wars against Edward I. So you have um, John Balliol, who's made King of Scots mm. um, by by Edward I, and Robert Bruce, Robert the Bruce, who is is the sort of the the, the, the sort of the, the patriotic leader who becomes king in 1306. Um, Bruce has a younger brother called Edward. <laughs> John Balliol has a younger brother or a, a, a son called Edward. I forget the exact, but mm. the point is. In the 1270s and 1280s, when the Scots and the English had been getting on fine, Scottish men of power and women of power, for that matter, have been very content to name their first or second born sons Edward. In deference to Edward I, that's how well they were getting. Nobody was going to call their son Edward after 
1296. So that that experiment, you know, it only lasts a generation. But it's just it's 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 you know one of the things that that Edward the First means is that going forward, whereas the Scots have been sort of happy to sort of anglicise after 1296 when when Edward invades, um, and especially after the 10 20 year, 10, 10 years of the end of Edward's reign where he's hammering the Scots, as you said, you know, with fire and sword and, and destruction. They, after that point, the Scots define themselves vehemently as we are not English. We are the opposite of English. And they sort of, they completely pivot. And there's that famous declaration uh, to the Pope from our broth in 1320, as long as, as, as long as a hundred of us remain alive, we will never on any conditions submit to the dominion of a king of England. Mm. You know, they're kind of like, Everything about them going forward is a rejection of of, Eng of, of English norms. So as I say, it's, it, it's a complete watershed moment, um, Edward I's mm. reign, in terms of Anglo-Scottish relations. To also Anglo-Welsh relations, which we've hardly touched upon. I mean, this is the that's Edward's great successful conquest from, from his and from the English point of view, is that Wales Welsh independence ends at that point, you know, that going forward, um, for better or for worse, you know, uh, Wales is, is hitched to England from Edward's reign on. At, at what point do the Scots start making these alliances with France against England? That's Edward's reign again. So um, that, that mean, all you, starts there. Well, um, in terms of a continuous, I mean, it's it's called the Old Alliance, you yeah. know, Old spelled A-U-L-D. There mm. have been earlier kings of Scotland. I'm thinking of Alexander II at the start of the 13th century. He is allied with um, the kings of France against King John. Right. Um, but that... But then because... the English are allied with the French against King John as well, aren't they? Yeah, they exactly. And so, over. But the, my point is, in the after King John's reign, throughout the long reign of Henry III and throughout the... Not well, not quite as long, but, you know, longish reign of Edward I, the, for most of the 13th century, the, 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 the uh, alliances are... The English and the French are getting along OK. The English and the Scots are getting along OK. And so there is no need for a hostile alliance between mm. the Scots and the French against the English. And it's only in 1295 when um, Edward was at war with Scotland. Um, uh, sorry, Edward is at war with France and the Scots are casting around for allies against him that they turn to the Scots, which were well, they, sorry, they, the Scots turn to the French, which, of course, you know, is is it pours fuel on the situation because then Edward is saying, how dare you ally with my enemies? You know, I'm trying to fight the French and you're you're allying against them. So the gloves really come off at that point. And that, that alliance lasts for the rest of forever, doesn't it? Well, thank you so much, Mark, for, for coming on and um, bringing some real expertise and proper knowledge uh, it's a to, pleasure. To, to my superficial undertaking. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Cheers, Mark. Bye. That was the great and terrible Mark Morris, author of Edward I, A Great and Terrible King. And that was Edward I. I'll leave it to you to make your own minds up about him. In the next episode, we'll see what happens when his son, Edward II, takes the throne. A man who is just about the complete opposite of his father in every way. And we'll be meeting Edward's notorious favourites, Piers Gaveston and Hugh Despenser, and watching how the country falls apart and descends once more into civil war. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. 
Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.